Welcome to the Gerald Brooks Leadership Podcast, a deep dive into biblical leadership with pastor and author, Dr. Gerald Brooks. Hi, this is Gerald Brooks. I want to thank you so much for joining me for another podcast. These podcasts are just rich opportunities for you as a leader to maybe uh, experience some skill-making moments that uh, you've probably felt, but maybe you haven't articulated clearly, and maybe we can sort of uh, put them under a, a magnifying glass and you can see them with a level of depth that maybe you haven't seen them before. Today, I want to talk to you about maintaining your leadership equilibrium. Maintaining your leadership equilibrium. See, whenever a leader loses their balance, distortion begins to cascade through the organization. So whenever a leader loses their balance, there's just sort of that loss of balance in life, distortion begins to cascade through the organization. Now, why is that? It's because whatever happens to a leader gets magnified and multiplied. So as a leader, whatever's going on in you gets magnified and it gets multiplied. So even when you do not think it's happening, it's going to get magnified and it's going to get multiplied. It's the old proverb. When the leader sneezes, the organization catches its cold. When a leader sneezes, an organization catches its cold. So uh, when we begin to look at the equilibrium of a leader, uh, we begin to find out there's some common reasons leaders will lose it. There's some common reasons that that leaders lose that ability of steadiness and, and stability, and, and they begin to have uh, places where their balance is no longer what it used to be. And what I found in watching leaders and studying leaders and be honest, being a leader, is that balance problems come back to four issues. Balance problems come back to four issues. And maybe it is a, a, a composite of these four and a mixture of them, but usually it involves four issues. The first issue that can cause a leader to become imbalanced and to have lose their equilibrium is the fact when they experience compassion fatigue compassion fatigue. Now, compassion fatigue is when you have hit your emotional limits. You've hit your emotional limits. You're emotionally drained. There's nothing in the tank. There's nothing there. You've become numb. It is just literally fumes on the inside. Compassion fatigue. And when compassion fatigue happens, all the emotional drainage has occurred and you've hit the limits and now you're trying to lead, but there's nothing to lead with. The symptoms are these. Your heart has flatlined. Now, let me talk to you about that. I don't know how psychologists come up with some of the things that I read. I don't play in that league, but it intrigues me at times. But I've read that if you take the emotional scale and you say zero's the person who has flatlined, they have no emotions left. And then you say 100% is the highest, best emotion someone has ever experienced. What they will say is that healthy people live between 30% of emotion and 70%. 
30% and 70%. And what psychologists will tell you is that if you're below 30%, you're probably heading towards clinical depression if you stay below that. On the other end, if you're always above 70%, then you're probably having it drug-induced. And that's a little bit of sarcasm. They didn't say that. But the reality is, is that most people do not live on the extremes of emotion. They're not on the lowest end and they're not on the highest end. There's times when they may be low and there's times where they may be high, but it's that 30 to 70% range that most people will find that's where their equilibrium is. But when their equilibrium is lost and they have compassion fatigue, what happens is their heart has flatlined. And that's a pretty graphic illustration because when we flatline, we know that's not good. We know that there has to be some intervention for things to get better. So when we talk about compassion fatigue, it begins with some symptoms. Your heart has flatlined. Uh, Also, there is a decreased ability to respond. So you may have been that quick responder, but now you just can't respond quickly. You may have been the individual who was always uh, sharp-witted, but now the wits have sort of left you. So the symptoms of compassion fatigue is that your heart is flatlined. Uh, You no longer have emotions to respond. And because you don't have emotions to respond, your ability to react has become decreased. And so where you used to be very on top of things, now you can hardly get yourself to do anything. And another thing that becomes a real defining symptom of a leader who is going through this particular moment is they start seeing people as problems to fix. No longer are people individuals with potential. Now they're just problems. Every phone call is a problem. Every conversation is a problem. Every engagement is a problem. People now have become problems to fix rather than seeing potential that needs to be mined. And so when you have compassion fatigue, your heart has flatlined. You've lost your ability to respond. You now view people as problems rather than seeing their potential. And when you do react, quick solutions are sought. You're no longer thinking through and saying, okay, if we do this, what is this going to do? And what is this going to do? What are the unintended consequences? It's just the first thing that comes to mind. That's what you're rolling with. And so quick solutions are sought. But then probably ultimately the symptom that stands out the most is the littlest of things now seems big. Little things overwhelm you. The littlest thing overwhelms you. The idea of one thing, the idea of the straw that broke the camel's back, the smallest things, things that would never sidetrack you, things that would never be in the scope of who you were, those kind of things. Now you're in a position and now you're in a place where the smallest thing, it's big. The smallest thing pushes you to the edge. The smallest thing overwhelms you. And what happens then is 
Anger is the only emotion you feel. When anger is all you have left, then compassion has gone from your life. And so what happens is someone walks into your office and you're just mad that they show up. Someone asks you a question, you're just mad. Why didn't they figure it out themselves? Something that's really, really small that would never irritate you sends you into blast mode. Anger is the only emotion you feel. So when we talk about compassion fatigue, we're talking about being at a place where you've emotionally hit the wall, you're emotionally drained, there's nothing in you, and the symptoms are your heart is flatlined, you now have a decreased ability to respond, you see people as problems to fix, quick solutions are what you are seeking, and little things seem big, and anger is the only emotion you feel. So when you find yourself there, And you know that you've lost your balance because you know that you can't be angry about everything. You know that you cannot live a life where you have flatlined. What do you do? Well, let me give you some responses. One of the responses is that you have to be able to analyze your personal gauges. You have to be able to analyze your personal gauges. Now, I'm saying something to you that took me years to be able to even understand. But over years, I've had to understand my personal gauges. So imagine you're sitting in front of whatever the top line vehicle is that you love. It's got everything in it. Usually, if you look at that dashboard, there's going to be some gauges. It's going to tell you how uh, your your car's doing as far as heat. It's going to tell you how the oil's doing. It's going to tell you how the brake pressure, the air pressure. It's going to tell you how much gas and fuel you have. You know to run that car, you've got to pay attention to the gauges. If you ignore that oil gauge or that fuel gauge or the heating gauge, uh, you're going to find yourself in trouble. Well, in life, you've got to understand there's some gauges. You've got to understand what your 30 to 70% is. You've got to understand how many times can you go below 30% and survive it? How often can you live above 70% and make it? You've got to understand your gauges. And if there's anything I'm more aware of today in leadership is I know where I'm at and my emotional makeup at a given moment. I know how much I have and I know that if I'm going to lead, especially in difficult moments, I'm going to have to be able to say, hey, I'm not going into the red over here. I'm not going to get down to the last few gallons of fuel here. I'm going to make sure that the oil and everything is lubricated uh, correctly. I'm going to begin to observe my personal gauges. And what I would say to any leader is you need to start learning you. You need to start understanding you. And then you need to understand that even when you don't feel like you need it, You need to build moments into your life where you are decompressing. Here's the thing. Most people don't build margin in their life until they have no margin. 
But if you're going to be a long-term leader and a healthy leader, then what you have to do is you have to build decompression moments in your life and you have to build them before you need them. So here's the thing. I watch people who give it their best all day and then they go home and they don't take moments to breathe. They don't take moments to just sort of slow down because, hey, we can go do this. Why? Because you don't feel like you've hit your edge. But the point of the matter is, is if you build decompression moments into your schedule, then what that means is you'll never hit your edge. You'll never hit your edge. So required responses, don't ignore your personal gauges. Learn what they are. Your required response, find time to decompress when you don't feel like you need to decompress. And then learn the power of reflection. How you got where you are and how you make sure that if it's a bad moment that you don't revisit that again. I remember one of the profound uh, moments in my life was reading a Harvard Business Review. And in that Harvard Business Review, it was talking to a psychologist who was a psychologist for CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. So he wasn't just everyone's sort of uh, psychologist that would talk to the average individual. He's talking to high performers. At the very end of this interview, he was asked this question. Is there one thing that distinguishes the good CEO from the bad one? And that would seem like a pretty complex answer to that. And he said, oh, that's simple. Good ones reflect and bad ones don't. See, good ones have learned the art of reflection. What did I do? Why did I do it? How do I do it better? Bad ones well, I'm the leader. I just do it. They never reflect. So they never learn and they make the same mistakes over and over again. So reflection is a self skill. In the Bible, it uses the word Selah. It talks about Mary and Luke that it says, and she pondered these things. It's just those reflective moments. So Leaders lose their balance, their equilibrium, when they have compassion fatigue. Second, when they experience crisis mode living. Now, let me dissect this. Every leader deals with crisis. And every leader has a crisis mode. But crisis mode living cannot be the norm. It cannot be the only thing that's happening. So when the only events in your life are crisis, then you have crisis mode living. See, everyone has moments of crisis, but it cannot become the normal standard of your life. So what do we do as leaders when we find ourselves in crisis mode living? Well, one observation I'd give is when it comes to crisis mode, don't make crisis. Don't add drama to the trauma. You know, there's people that create their own drama and it becomes their own trauma. Don't do that. Life's tough enough without you creating 
drama around every, oh, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe we're dealing with it. You mean you did this? This is so, let go of the drama. Breathe. Don't let crisis mode living be the only thing. Because the more dramatic you are, the more crisis you're going to experience. So what do we do with crisis mode living? Well, it's got to be handled. Now, again, I'm a person of faith and being a person of faith, my first mode of handling this is prayer. And it's not prayer that changes a problem, but it's prayer that creates perspective. See, prayer always creates perspective. If you're praying correctly, it creates perspective. And the perspective is this. There is a God and you're not him. See, whenever you pray, you're saying there's someone who's bigger than you. There's someone who's better than you. And what prayer does is it keeps the perspective that it's not on your shoulders, that it's not all up to you. This world was spinning before you got here. In all likelihood, this world is going to keep spinning after all of us leave. But what prayer does is it creates that ultimate perspective. We begin to sit there and we begin to say, hey, you know what? God is still God. And God is still in control. Everything may look like it's floundering, but God's still in control. When I just teach pastors, I many times will refer to Genesis 1-2, and it says, And there was chaos upon the earth, and the Spirit of God moved. And what I tell people is, God can move in imperfect circumstances. It doesn't have to be peaceful. It doesn't have to be just an environment of perfection for God to move. God moved when there was chaos upon the earth. So all prayer does is it reminds you that there's a God above and it gets you pointed towards him versus you pointing everything towards you. So prayer, which gives you perspective, priorities, which reminds you of your values. See, crisis distorts Crisis creates background noise that can just cause our minds to go haywire. But you need to establish your priorities, and what priorities do is they remind you of your values. And you never let a crisis determine your values. Your values are determined before a crisis, because if you let crisis determine your values, you will be a person who has no values. So crisis mode living, remember to pray and look up, have priorities, which remind you of your values and don't lose those in crisis and have people in your life so that you're not doing life alone. There is no biblical plan that projects the individual is being the all in all. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, It says two are better than one. And then it goes on and it says, if one falls, the other will lift them up. In your life, you need to find people. And you need to be the people who are going to be with them when they're having the worst times in their life. And you need to be the individual that they come to when you're having the worst time in your life. 
So crisis mode living, pray. Have a perspective of heaven above. Priorities. Remember your values and don't compromise them. And people, find the people who you need in your life and be there for them and their life. And I know people come up and say, well, I don't have anyone that's there for me. Then my question is, who have you been there for? So leaders lose their balance because of compassion fatigue, crisis mode living, and then three, chronic inconsistency. Chronic inconsistency. See, chronic inconsistency just defeats everything a leader is supposed to be. So uh, chronic inconsistency shows up in your activities. Sometimes you're putting in a lot of effort. Sometimes you're putting in no effort. Chronic inconsistency shows up in how you respond to time. Sometimes you're on time and sometimes you're late. And chronic inconsistency shows up in your plans because you're all over the place. The plan keeps changing. Things keep changing. And so when it comes to your activity, nobody's sure what kind of effort they're going to get. When it comes to your time, no one's sure what schedule you're running on. When it comes to your plans, well, it's going to change today because it changes every day. Leaders cannot have chronic inconsistency. Chronic inconsistency puts you in a position where people cannot follow you. They don't know what they're getting. They don't know what the effort's going to be. They don't know what the schedule's going to be. They don't know what the plan's going to be. Chronic inconsistency. So if we're prone to that, and maybe you're just prone to one, maybe it's the timing issue. Maybe it's the activities issue. Maybe it's the planning issue. What kind of response should you have? What do you do? Well, if you're going to handle chronic inconsistencies, you need anchors. Anchors are people who keep you steady. Now, one of the things that amazes me is how many people want people who inspire them but they don't have anyone who anchors them. I think that is one of the most devastating processes a person can get in. I want people who lift me up, but no one who holds me and steadies me. Everybody needs anchors. The problem with anchors is anchors don't look good. They're not shiny. They're usually crusty and rusty. So here's the deal. Who are the people in your life that keep you steady? When you start going all over the place, who can you look to and say, okay, that's going to be my bearing. I'm going to be like that. You got to have anchors. When it comes to chronic inconsistency, you've got to simplify. And simplification is this. Figure out what can be left undone. Every day, leaders are handed more things to do than they can do. But it's not only are they handed more things to do than they can do, they're handed more things to do than they should do. And simplifying, the writer of Hebrews, it says, setting aside every weight, 
every little thing that slows us down. Figure out what can be left undone in your life. Just simplify. Wisdom. If you're chronically inconsistent, figure out when you're at your best. And when you're at your best, do the most important things then. See, some people are morning people. That's when they're at their best. Well, if you're a morning person, you need to challenge the most difficult things when you're at your best. But some people are night people. Some people, God doesn't want to talk to them when they first get up. In fact, God says, hey, go drink some coffee. I don't want to talk to you because they've seen you when you get up. But the problem is you have to have wisdom to figure out, are you morning or you're night? The problem is when there's not a time of day that you're good. Find out when you're good and begin to organize the things that must be done during those times. And growth. How do I get better? Yesterday in my staff meeting with my team, I did a lesson. How do we do our best better? See that phrase, well, I'm doing my best it becomes an excuse to be mediocre. So how do you do your best better? If you're a singer, how do you get up on stage and better that? If you're a communicator, how do you get up and better that? If you're an organizer, how do you get up and be better at that? So responses, you need anchors. People will keep you steady. You need to simplify, figure out what can be left undone. You need wisdom where you can figure out when you're really at your best. You need to grow. You need to learn how to do your best better. And you need to focus. You need the ability to eliminate all distractions. You need to realize there are times when the emails don't matter, the texts don't matter, the notifications don't matter. You need to be able to focus. So when leaders lose their balance, their equilibrium, it's compassion fatigue. It's crisis mode living. It's chronic inconsistency. And then it's commitment issues. Commitment issues are just simply this. The grass is always greener. In our society, people love green grass. Oh, that job looks better than this job. That opportunity is better than this opportunity. This is better. Here's the simple truth. If you think the grass is greener somewhere else, it's because you do not realize the commitment that was required to make green grass. You're not looking at who did the planting, who planted the grass, who watered and watered the grass, who was weeding and weeding the grass, who was mowing and mowing the grass, and who was fertilizing and fertilizing the grass. If the grass is greener, then it means someone was committed. Commitment issues. Here's what I know. Most people move so often that God doesn't even know where they're at. Most young people, oh, I want this job. I'm going to be here. It amazes me that three years is the most that some people can possibly commit. They're never going to see God's best because God's not in a hurry. They're going to never do their best for God 
because you can't do your best in three years. Here's the thing. What is my response to commitment issues? Remember, it's hard to grow if you don't stay planted. A lot of people have this image of this magnificent ministry. And it's hard to grow. But it's hard to grow because they never stay planted. They've never set to their hand to the plow, as Jesus said, and not looked back. I think another response is, remember even the perfect job eventually requires work. It amazes me how many people don't want a job, they want a hobby. Can I tell you, I have a hobby in my life. No one pays me for my hobby. I get paid to do a job. God told the church at Antioch, separate Paul and Barnabas for the work whereunto I've called them. You're not going to get away from work. One, God asked us to work. But two, back in Genesis 3, when Adam fell, one of the curses was, you will work. So, in this world, remember even the perfect job eventually requires work. And remember, every time you start again, it costs more. So the individual who's constantly refinancing their home, the person who's constantly getting a new car, they're just starting over. Because anyone who knows the power of interest knows that interest is front-loaded. And so the amount of interest usually is not equal. It's front-loaded. And so every time you start, you're not paying off anything you're just paying for it. But also understand this. Ultimately, commitment's not an issue of circumstances. It's an issue of heart. Everyone blames being uncommitted on their circumstances. But commitment's not a circumstance issue. It's a heart issue. In marriage, it's a heart issue. Responding to a call of God, it's a heart issue. And in life, commitment is a heart issue. It's not the circumstances. So, leaders lose their equilibrium when they have compassion fatigue, when they are in crisis mode living, when there's chronic inconsistency, and when they're constantly faced with commitment issues. Maybe you could dive into this. This would be a great lesson for some of you to break down. You could break it down on a leadership level. You could break it down and just teach your congregation if you're a pastor. But all of this are great thoughts. Hey, I want to remind you that on October 17th and 18th, we are hosting the North Texas Leadership Conference. And that conference is literally, we have full registrations because we will be giving people who are senior pastors under the full reservations hundreds of dollars of resources. But we have limited reservations right now, and you can sign up for those at the door. Now, there's a lot of things you're not going to get, but you're going to get to be in a room with some great leaders. You're going to hear some great lessons, and you're going to have some great opportunities. And for all of you that are in the north, you're up in Pennsylvania, and you're around, um, you know, West Virginia, those kind of places, uh, we're doing a roundtable in Ohio. And 
I just want to invite you to come. It's on October 31st. We'll start at 9 o'clock. It'll be over by 3.30. And it's just going to be a great roundtable. I'm excited because it's new lessons I've never shared before publicly. I love the one on questions I've never been asked. I've fielded questions for over 25 years at roundtables. And there's some questions I've never been asked. I'm going to tell you what those questions are. And I'm going to give you the answers to them. And I just think it's going to be gold to many of you. And then I'm going to talk about the three reasons most organizations never develop leaders. I think that'll help you. And there's a few other lessons I'll be sharing, but you can go to my webpage, GeraldBrooksMinistry.com, and you can uh, just begin to fill out the information there. Uh, Also, my new book, um, Keys to Effective Living, it'll be coming out in book form uh, just in a few weeks, but if you want the digital form, you can get that already. If you listen to the last lesson, Seven Principles on Gratitude, that's chapter one. There's ten more. Cha- uh, there's nine more chapters just like that. Hey, thank you so much for being a part. Thank you for listening to the Gerald Brooks Leadership Podcast. If you'd like more information on Dr. Brooks's books, audio, or speaking engagements, please go to GeraldBrooksMinistries.com.